From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Sheck, religionforlife.com. For me, it became a pragmatic question. And if, you know, for those that followed the, the blog, I started day one with the question, what difference does God make? In fact, my opening mm-hmm. question wasn't even, does God exist? Um, and I think for someone who's followed God and Jesus all of their lives, I think they can relate to the question, does it matter? Uh, what difference does God make? And for me, if God doesn't make a kind of practical difference, then that's functionally atheism in my view. Former Seventh-day Adventist pastor Ryan Bell took a year off from God. He left his position as a pastor and then made an experiment. What would it be like to live as an atheist for a year? He talked about his adventure on his blog, A Year Without God. And now he has a podcast called Life After God. He speaks with me on Religion for Life about his journey. This is the third of a three-part series on clergy who have left the ministry. We spoke earlier with David Hayward and with Pat Green. You can find those interviews on podcast. And today, Ryan Bell via Skype from Los Angeles. Welcome, Ryan, to Religion for Life. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Good to be here with you. Well, you have made the news in in, in a major way, uh, a year without God, a minister who uh, decided to say, what would life be like if I didn't have God in it? And uh, before we get right to that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your life was before you made that decision to go a year without God? Yeah, I had been a pastor for 19 years um, and a student of religion and theology. I uh, had a MDiv from Andrews University Theological Seminary, which is the, um, the Seventh-day Adventist Seminary in Michigan, mm-hmm. and then a, a doctor of ministry from Fuller Theological Seminary. And I had been most recently the pastor of the Hollywood Seventh-day Adventist Church here in Los Angeles uh, for the last eight years of my ministry. So that was you know, my whole life from undergraduate. I mean, the minute I graduated from my undergraduate degree in, in theology, I went straight out to be a pastor and did that for my entire adult life up until a year ago. And that Hollywood uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church sounds like a pretty big, good-sized church. Actually, it wasn't um, and, and isn't. It, it's, um, you know, it's Hollywood sort of brings to mind uh, fame and fortune yeah. uh, for people. But but the church uh, was a kind of a beautiful uh, congregation of misfits and outcasts. Um, it was, um, you know, we had probably uh, 10% on any given Sabbath uh, were uh, homeless or very poor, nearly homeless individuals who fellowshiped with us. We had um, people that had recently graduated from college that were looking for work and, you know, sharing uh, small apartments together to make ends meet. So it was, it's a fairly unus- inauspicious kind of place. Okay. Well, um, and it was also pretty progressive, as I understand, or, or liberal, um, or you were certainly, even as a minister. I, when I think of Seventh-day Adventist, I think it's, you know, pretty, pretty conservative. Um, Maybe you can yeah, that's right. tell, tell me a little bit about what Seventh-day Adventist uh, is and then, and then yeah, how you fit into right. that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is notoriously conservative. One would even say fundamentalist. Um, it's on all the classic culture war issues of uh, creation and evolution and same-sex marriage, homosexuality in general, um, all you know, right down the line, mm-hmm. conservative. Um, our church was known uh, in part because I led it that direction. Um, 
known for its an emphasis on social justice, um, our involvement in community organizing with a network uh, called LA Voice in Los Angeles that organized faith communities uh, for social justice. So we had a different take. You know, we our outreach was a community garden, not a prophecy evangelistic series. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it was very different. And as a result, it was... Um, controversial with the denomination for all the years I was there, I would say. So as you were the minister there for eight or nine years, and then and then what happened? Is, was there a change within you, or um, how, how did your exploration start? Well, you know, I came to the point where um, the tension between myself and the denomination had grown. I mean, for those that don't know, I mean, the system, the denominational system is more like the Catholic Church in the sense that the denominational office hires pastors and then dispatches them to churches. So okay. I worked, you know, my fiduciary responsibility was to the conference office. Um, and yet I had this sort of personal and spiritual responsibility to the local congregation and the two couldn't have been more different and, uh, their objectives more different. So, um, I, I finally came to the place where the denomination and I came to a parting of the ways over some, uh, policy issues, uh, related to finances and, and, uh, evangelism and church, uh, mission, but also over my personal stance on, uh, issues like same sex marriage. It just came to the place where, um, I, I think we, they first decided I wasn't sufficiently Adventist anymore. And then I sort of reluctantly agreed. So that was the parting of the ways in March of 2013. Um, and the rest of 2013, those remaining nine months, I spent quite a bit of time, just trying to figure out what I was. Um, I, I clearly wasn't a pastor anymore, at least not in the formal sense. And I wasn't sure if I was a Seventh-day Adventist anymore. And then I sort of began to wonder whether I was really a, a Christian anymore. Um, so I, uh, by the end of that year and the beginning of 2014, when I launched Year Without God, and when I say launched, I mean, really back then I, I just put up a blog, which mm-hmm. if anybody's ever put up a blog before, you know how hard yay, impossible it is to get a robust readership. I mean, there's just millions of blogs out there. So I just decided to, you know, blog about this experience and and also my process that I had decided to undertake, which was, is God really there in the sense that I kind of expected that he was or she was? And mm-hmm. I, I um, just felt like I had never really given that question a fair shake, uh, either in my childhood and growing up years or in my professional life. It doesn't sound like uh, that you went into this year without God knowing where you would end up at the end. I mean, it sounds to me like it was pretty honest questioning. Yeah, it was honest questioning. I mean, I, of course, if I was, you know, forced to wonder and imagine or, or speculate where I would end up, I would have had some, some speculations. But I, I didn't know for sure. In fact, I, the way I tend to say it these days is that I think when I started in 2014, I wanted there to be a God. Like I really mm-hmm. hoped that I would find out that there was, but I was quite concerned and worried. Not worried is the wrong way to say it, but I, I suspected that I wouldn't find God, but I really wanted to find God. So I was, I, that was kind of the tension that I was in. Yeah. Well, uh, just a practical matter. Uh, I, I did you have did you get another job after you finished uh, with the the ministry? 
Well, that was a big issue. I mean, I didn't, I had a, um, a generous severance since I'd worked for the denomination for nearly 20 years. And so that tided me over for a few months. Um, and then I really hit a crisis point in my, my financial life. I eventually did find a job in April of near like about 13 months after my termination from employment, I did find another job um, at a homeless services agency that I had volunteered at with my church uh, when I was a pastor called PATH, uh, which is people assisting the homeless. And so I, I did go to work for them and uh, worked for PATH for about a year. In fact, I just uh, ended my employment with PATH. They had a little restructuring and, and, uh, and so my, my employment there came to an end as of just Friday, actually. So I'm back in the job hunt. Oh, well, well good luck to you. I hope you find something uh, that uh, fits your needs and skills. And that's what I kind of wanted to talk about, too, a little bit. Uh, ministry is kind of a, a specific set of skills, but it also covers a lot of wide range. Did, do, you, do, you, do you find you, you miss the profession in any way? You, certainly, yeah. I mean, it was my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think for me... I had become almost a post-theist without knowing it, without saying it. or no, I didn't have people like you or Greta Vosper or others that I didn't know of you all. I didn't even like know that you existed or that the idea of post-theist pastors was an idea that was like out there. So uh-huh. I, um, I really had taken my congregation, uh, in, like I said, in a focus on um, – social justice, community organizing, uh, community development. And I think it, was, it had become a vehicle for me to be uh, an ethical person and to lead others towards an ethical life uh, in the world. And I had become quite agnostic about some of the more difficult theological questions. I just was thinking these aren't really the important thing. The important thing is what are we going to do about the people that are sleeping on the sidewalk? I mean, that's the that's the important pressing concern, not how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, frankly, you know, if you have spare time uh, and lots of, you know, resources and privileges, you can probably take your time to think about those things. But uh, for those that don't have those privileges, you know, basic quality of life becomes the most important thing. So I I think as I evolved out of being a Christian um, and to the place where I am today, my concerns are, are actually surprisingly the same. I mean, I'm, I still see myself as a a minister of sorts. I I get emails and uh, weekly dozens of them from people who are in a similar place to where I was a year ago and want to want to talk about it. The same kind of pastoral conversations that I would have had when I was a pastor. So what did you do uh, in these first years to kind of research uh, who you were and, and where you were becoming? You know, it wasn't very scientific. It wasn't. It wasn't um, even very um, systematic. I wouldn't say. I mean, I did read some of the well-known books, but also lesser-known books. I listened to podcasts and videos and debates. So I did try to delve into the technical questions around: um, Does God exist from a science perspective, from a philosophy perspective, from theology and the Bible? Um, but I also just talked to a lot of people. I, um, I went to some conferences where atheists and agnostics tend to gather and, um, just talk to people because my story went viral like it did, Mm -hmm. um, which I wasn't expecting. It gave me, uh, a very unique and, um, I'm very fortunate, 
a very unique window into the post-theist, you know, atheist community and uh, put me in touch with some people that I probably wouldn't have been able to, to talk to necessarily on my own. So, uh, so that was really good. And I think it forced the issue. I mean, journalists asking, what exactly is it that you're doing in this year without God really actually was the thing that made me think, okay, what exactly is it that I'm doing? You know, I, people criticized, of course, saying, um, you know, you can't just decide to not believe in God. You either believe or you don't. Like if I, you know, someone would say, if I, you know, if I put a gun to your head and said, you know, believe in Thor right now, or I'm going to, you know, kill you. Like you can't just make yourself believe in Thor. It's, you either do or you don't, you know? And so I see that point. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that, that's a good point. Maybe I, you know, where am I, you know, in this, in this spectrum of belief and unbelief? And so it was those kinds of questions and challenges that really helped me um, go deeper. And so it, it was sort of evolved very organically like that. Um, and when I had a particular question, I would seek out books and videos and podcasts about that question. And then there were just podcasts that I listened to that raised issues for me that I hadn't even thought of before. So it was a range of things. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Ryan Bell. He's the blogger, A Year Without God. Um, you know, how do you, I often think, that there are groups of people that definitely want to define us and put us in, in boxes. and uh, But I found with you a little bit, you, you're kind of a little, at, at least for a while, talking about being uh, in the midst of kind of atheism, the tug, or, or, or something else that you're post-theist, that uh, people want to label and define, uh, but it's a little bit more gray than that, isn't it? I think it can be for people. And I, I really, you know, I was just talking to a friend yesterday. It really depends on f the place you've come from, how you approach the question of yeah. theism or atheism. So if you've come from fundamentalism and were seriously abused by religion, I think it's much more clear cut. Uh, for those of us that have evolved from being uh, very fundamentalist to being very progressive, there's a lot more of a gray area. The pace of evolution is slower. Um, so I find myself trying to explain Christians to atheists and explain atheists to Christians. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm defending both to each other all the time because I really don't think what advances the conversation are sort of narrow, um, straw man, if you will, types of, of arguments, which we often get, even from academics. You know, I'll be surprised to be reading an academic philosopher who will then sort of as a throwaway comment talk about how well, atheists, you know, are have this robust confidence that there is no God, and and I'm, and I'm I'm always quick to say, I don't know any atheists that know for sure that there isn't a God. Even Richard Dawkins doesn't know for sure that there isn't a God. I think you know, it's, it becomes a, a question of probability, and I think for Richard Dawkins, he's as close to being sure of that as he could possibly be scientifically. Um, but for other people, they there is a a gray area where they're not sure. For me, it became a pragmatic question. And if, you know, for those that followed the, the blog, I started day one with the question, what difference does God make? In fact, my opening mm -hmm. question wasn't even, does God exist? Um, and I think for someone who's followed God and Jesus all of their lives, I think they can relate to the question, does it matter? Uh, what difference does God make? And for me, if God doesn't make a kind of practical difference, then that's functionally atheism in my view. Like, 
So if, if, if what we end up at the end of the day is the possibility of God or the possibility of a deistic, you know, first cause, then what's the difference functionally between that and there being no God? And to me, there is absolutely no difference between those things. And so when it comes to like Wednesday morning, I get up, put my feet on the floor, like how am I going to live my life? Um, I have to think in sort of what we would call methodologically naturalistic terms because functionally that's, that's where we're at. If I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I've reasoned through it. I often just ask the question, well, what does God do? I mean, is there anything, you know, that happens? Uh, yeah, they, uh, the, what was it? The old uh, somebody quipped that um, Darwin put uh, God, you know, out of a job, and Galileo put him out of a house. So you know, there's just <laughs> so there really is nothing for a super uh, interventionist being to accomplish. And so a lot of that, you know, I would say probably a great deal of my colleagues are probably atheists in that just like me. Um, they don't uh, believe that there is a God that does things like that. But we redefine the term a lot. What do you make of that, of uh, the redefinitions of the word in order to retain it? You know, I'm really glad you asked that question because I I do encounter that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like sometimes when we're like, it's, it's kind of a forest and trees kind of thing. I think when you're in the forest, you're having these theological and philosophical conversations. It's, you know, they're kind of like these wonderful salon conversations and we can talk about the nuances of words and the historical evolution of these concepts like atheism. And, but when you step back from the whole thing and you see this accommodationist kind of trajectory unfolding uh, where we say, well, you know, clearly God's not answering prayer. So then we say, well, we never, God, we misunderstood that. God was never really meant to answer prayer, you know, but God's still there. Well, what's God doing? Well, God is, you know, working behind the scenes in a very uh, unintrusive way. And then we say, well, that doesn't seem likely either. Well, let's redefine God again and say, well, God's really not doing that either, but God started it all. Well, how do we know God's, you know, so eventually what I I call it the slow death of God, you know, Nietzsche, Mm. Nietzsche's madman, you know, announced ahead of time, right? Like before anybody was ready to hear it, the God is dead. And, and so for me, my personal experience of this is, is to say it's been the slow death of God. So, you know, my, my good friend, Peter Rollins is a, is a good example. And, and I yeah. use his name because he, he and I are friends. And I would say this, even if he were on the air with us right now, um, I, I feel like, you know, he is, I have asked him many times, like, why can't you say just what seems patently obvious to me, which is that you're an atheist. Um, but there's a kind of nuance. It almost sounds like game playing to me, and it's a little puzzling and confusing. And I think people really want to hold on to these labels because it gives them meaning. It gives them value in their life in some way. Um, for me, what gives me value is you know, this kind of sort of radical authenticity. And by saying that, I don't mean to mm-hmm. be saying other people are being inauthentic, at least not deliberately inauthentic. But I, I feel like I would rather just call it what it is and then move on and talk about, well, what do we do now? And um, so that's why I'm starting a project that's going to, I mean, I'm going to launch it in the next week or two called Life After God. And the whole point of Life After God is to help people grapple with, well, what, what do I do now? What is next? How do I live my life now that this narrative rug has been sort of pulled out from under me? Life After God. Tell me a little bit more about that. Is that uh, an online uh, thing? Yeah, it's going to be a number of things, but I think 
the thing I'm most excited about, I mean, there'll be a podcast and there'll be a mm-hmm. website with a blog and all of that. But I think the thing I'm most excited about is the coaching component. So when I was the way I best way I can describe this is like when I was a pastor, the church provided me a salary. And then I had this unlimited, almost unlimited time, at least within normal work limits of talking to people and being their pastor and um, sort of helping them as a coach walk through the stages of their life and help them grapple with the questions that were on their mind. And I still want to be able to do that. Um, only there's no structure to allow for that really anywhere. And, um, so I, I want to be able to be this kind of coach person to people. And I'm, so I'm thinking of doing it in individual scenarios, one-on-one over Skype or phone, uh, or if they live in the neighborhood, you know, in person, of course. And then um, also in group settings online where we might have some peer support uh, built in to um, the process. So there would be some one-on-one time where I would talk with people, but then they would be in conversation with one another in a group of, say, five to ten people as well. Um, I'll be doing some events like retreats around the country, uh, where we can gather to talk about this in between space, this liminal space. Cause I think this is the great untapped, um, area. I mean, we, the, every research report that comes out from the demographers tells us that this group of nuns is growing mm-hmm. and that they're not comfortable calling themselves Christians or Muslims or Jews or whatever they might be. Well, Jews are more comfortable staying Jewish, but, um, but they're also not comfortable really thinking of themselves as atheists either because of the loaded terminology. So this in-between space is there's really nobody there. I'm not saying nobody. I mean, you're there and Greta's there and others people are there, but there's very few people. Yeah. Yes, very few. Very few. And it's tough to do it within a setting, within a traditional setting, um, say the Methodist church or whatever. I, I often wonder what what's going to happen because you describe, in a sense, a need for a community, a need for a place where people can, you know, live life and communicate with each other and bring their ideas. But I, I often wonder if it's going to happen at all uh, within these traditional denominations, if they can, if they have it within them to make that kind of change. And um I don't know. I guess the jury's still out. But what about Unitarian Universalism or something like that? Uh, I bet, I'll, I'll bet a church probably asked you uh, to serve them. You know, I, I have thought of that, and many people have suggested it, and I would be open to it. Um, I haven't aggressively sought it out. Um, there are two fantastic UU churches uh, here in Pasadena um, that I've visited, and I know the minister at one of them quite well. And, um, you know, we did community organizing stuff together in the past. And um, so, yeah, that's that's definitely a possibility. I mean, I, what I find is I, having been in the church for so long, and this is just a very personal thing, mm-hmm. I find that the churchy part of it, the gathering for singing and, and stuff like that, feels, it, it sort of, it feels uncomfortable to me now. I, okay. I, and I think it's probably an issue of time. Um, I, I, I just it triggers for me so many other things that I have a hard time with right now. Um, I'm getting involved. Uh, I've decided I want to be a little bit more involved in our local Sunday assembly here as they try to figure out what their identity is in a deeper way. And um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking yeah, I'll visit. Take a couple of minutes on that Sun- Sunday assembly. What That is uh, atheist church is what I heard. Tell me more about what happens. Yeah, that's a shorthand. Uh, it started in, in England. Um, with Pippa and, and uh, Sanderson, who are comedians, and um, 
And they, like many of us, just said, hey, we, we don't believe in God anymore, but that doesn't mean we don't want to have friends and have community and do good, good work in the neighborhood as a result of our community. So they started this thing, which I think spread faster and, and more widely than they expected. And now they're in, I don't know, 30 countries or something like that and um, dozens and dozens of these groups. And they, when you walk, each one's a little different. I've spoken now at four of them. And um, the one in Los Angeles here is much more church-like than any of the other ones I've been to. There's a, a, an order of service. There's a bulletin when you come in. There's coffee and donuts. There's singing. Um, there's a what we, we would think of as a sermon or a message or a talk. Um, often the talk is by a scientist, though, or a psychologist or a sociologist um, about some other kind of like just interesting topic related to humanism and um, you know, like they like to say, celebrating the one life we know we have. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, and they, and there's relationships are formed. People go out to lunch afterwards. It's, it, it resembles the best elements of church that I, from my experience, and there's like two to 300 people here in Los Angeles that meet once a month. Um, I've been to the one in Las Vegas, the one in Phoenix, um, and the one in San Diego. And each of them is a little different, but they have common these common qualities and a common mission. You mentioned earlier that uh, you try to have uh, some kind of link between, you know, Christians and atheists, help them understand each other. I think there should be some kind of natural ally between progressive Christians um, and atheists. And yet there just doesn't seem to be a very good connection sometimes. No, that's true. Um, there's a wonderful little congregational church in Hollywood, Mount Hollywood Congregational Church, and they are one block from Center for Inquiry in Hollywood, which is also home to Atheists United. And they've both at times expressed interest in doing a service project together or some other kind of event. Um, I spoke at Mount Hollywood Congregational Church a few months ago, and it was it was so um, uh, so, I think, characteristic of liberal Christianity and progressive Christianity these days, this little lady came up to me and um, um, she was about 90 and she said, I really appreciated your talk, but I think you're preaching to the choir here, you know? <laughs> so, and I was talking about uh -huh. like living between belief and unbelief and what it's like to lose your faith. And, and uh, she's like, oh yeah, been there, done that. Um, <laughs> now yeah. can we talk about what we're going to do about, you know, the living wages here in Los Angeles? Um, so that's, I think that's the attitude of many progressive Christians. They're like, oh yeah, we, we've known for a long time that God doesn't answer our prayers. That's okay. We'll handle it ourselves. You know? Like, yeah. You know, that's, big... that's, that's right. It's like Pope Francis, you know, even, I mean, he, he certainly they're not, they're never going to unload all of the dogma, but he just puts it on the back burner and talks about ethics. And I, I think yeah, I, I mean, right up until he doesn't, you know, and well, I mean, I think true. that's where I think atheists have a problem with with Christianity still. It's because they're never sure when something like that's going to pop up and become an issue. Mm. Um, so I, there, there is some mistrust, I would say, um, that I think just needs more more time and, and effort put into it. All right. Ryan, you were working on a book, too. Yeah, I am. I'm working on a memoir about my experience and my sort of in the context of my whole career as a pastor and religious life. So I'm, I'm plugging away. Ryan Bell, uh, blogger, A Year Without God, a new project coming up on um, Life After God. Looking forward to seeing how that develops and, uh, and all the best to you in your, in your job search as well. Uh, thanks uh, for your work and for being with me today. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. And don't miss Ryan's podcast, Life After 
after God. You've been listening to Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck, religionforlife.com. If you want links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. You can find podcasts on iTunes, on Stitcher, Podomatic, all over the place. Uh, If you listen to podcasts in a certain way and subscribe to them in a certain way, let me know what you use, and we'll put Religion for Life right there. Uh, Religion for Life is 29 minutes altogether, and so it's perfect for a radio station and free to radio stations like WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, and KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be well.